You are listening to Intersections with Phil Allen Jr., engaging the issues that matter at the intersection of race, culture, and theology. Welcome to the show. My guest on this episode of Intersections is a dear friend of mine, Ebony Thomas, a fellow alum of the North Carolina A&T State University. So that means you will hear a couple of Aggie prides in this episode as we represent our school. I love collaborating with HBCU alums, especially fellow Aggies. I want everyone to hear the brilliant minds that are shaping our world today who have come out of HBCUs. Ms. Thomas is the Racial Equality and Economic Opportunity Initiatives Executive at Bank of America. She's responsible for their $1 billion four-year initiative to accelerate work to help drive racial equality and economic opportunity for people and communities of color. She currently serves as a board member at Central Piedmont Community College in Charlotte, North Carolina, as well as a, a member of the Board of Visitors for the School of Business at Howard University. She's a mother of three wonderful children. I believe she is and should soon be recognized as one of the top 100 or 50 most influential black women in America. There, I said it. She is sought after, a sought after voice, sharing the platforms with some of the most powerful and influential women in the country, in fact, in the world. Her passion is to empower women to see them win. So I'm here with a fellow Aggie, a friend of mine. Um, so we, got, we definitely have to start with an Aggie pride for the people. Aggie pride. Aggie pride. <laughs> Always. That's Always. how we do. <laughs> um, I'm here with, uh, as I introduced, Ebony Thomas, friend of mine, fellow Aggie. So let's just dive right in. Um, I want people to know who you are. And as I was thinking, uh, it's Black History Month. HBCUs have always been central in producing many of the talented African-Americans that have contributed to this nation in profound ways. Um, and finally getting the respect um, I know we both believe is overdue. You see yeah, uh, Madam, Madam Vice President um, Kamala Harris from Howard, uh, Cedric Richmond went to Morehouse, Michael Reagan is, a, is an Aggie. Um, he's leading the EPA. And not to mention notable figures that influenced the election. Jim Clyburn, South Carolina State, Keisha Lance Bottoms, and Stacey Abrams. In helping listeners know who you are, because I think you're one of those influencers, right? And I've told you this before already, so you, you already know that how I feel. How did you end up to be an Aggie? How did, what made you want to go to an HBCU? Uh, let's start there. You know, growing up in North Carolina, I, um, you grow up with a sense of knowing essentially three institutions because it's a, you know, big college basketball state. And so I grew up really knowing, you know, Chapel Hill, um, you know, following Duke, you know, not a Duke fan, but, you know, Ooh. that was the, <laughs> that was the, you know, what you watched. And then NC State, right? And so, you know, growing up in, in this community where college basketball is so fierce and you had, you know, amazing teams, it was very natural, I think, for me at that early age of thinking I wanted to go to one of those institutions. So in full transparency, my, my thought was I wanted, you know, to be, uh, to go to UNC Chapel Hill. My cousin had gone to Chapel Hill 
And um, when I was, when it was time to make that decision, I had an uncle actually, who's an Aggie and, you know, had just influenced me to say, I just don't know, Ebony, if that's really the right track for you. I, I think that you could benefit to going to a historically black college and, and university. So in full transparency, I only applied to North Carolina a and in terms of one black institution. I had applied to Ch Chapel Hill, NC State, um, UVA, you know, schools, schools um, out of state and, and in state. And then ultimately, you know, my last institution was um, A&T. And um, I got into A&T among other institutions. And my uncle just really said, Ebony, I think you should go here. This is the right place for you. And quite honestly, he was right. I never looked back from that decision. It was one of the, what I think the greatest decisions in my life. I mean, I think a lot of us can pinpoint moments that matter in our lives. Um, and that was a moment that mattered. That that was one of the sum of many things that have made me who I am. And, you know, when I think about the names that you just mentioned, amazing HBCU um, alum that have gone on to do amazing things, but there's so many amazing HBCU alums that just because we don't know their names don't make, you know, doesn't make them yeah, not great, absolutely, right? They absolutely. are absolutely amazing. We interacted with them on a daily basis. Many of them we graduated with. And, um, and so it was a great journey. I will say that two things that I believe HBCU did for me, um, it created resilience in me, you know, and the way that I define resilience is the speed in which you recover. And so when I think about the speed in which I have recovered over time, particularly being in corporate America, because there is a lot of recovery <laughs> for black women. Um, you know, sometimes there are many wins and there are many losses and the time in which you recover between those, I think HBCU did that for me. It taught me um, drive and motivation and ambition um, in a way that is sometimes hard to explain. And then the second reason that wraps into that is that it it made me not aware of my blackness. You know, it it was a it was a it was a bubble. It was a community in which your existence was just that. Yeah. I was just Ebony. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were just Phil, right? You know, going into the cafeteria was just an experience, right? You weren't conscious of am I the only black person in this in this restaurant? Am I the only black person in this room? I was just, we could be who we were, um, who we are. And and that was the beauty of that bubble that it creates. And, and so for me, that resilience and um, that lack of awareness of blackness um, shaped me. It completely shaped me. And it, and it suited up my armor to go into an environment where <laughs> being black is, you're always aware of that, yeah. um, particularly in a corporate setting. And so to sometimes remember that and um, use that as a shield um, is, is something that you, as a, as a HBCU grad, you draw upon in those moments of loneliness. You, you go back to that and you remember what that felt like to be completely embraced and loved and more my color didn't matter. Yeah, that's good. That's good. You know, as you were talking, I was thinking about, very similar to you, I wasn't originally planning on going to a and I wanted to play 
in no one for one of those schools you named Duke, mm-hmm. Carolina, NC mm-hmm. State. I wanted to play basketball for one of those schools, and um, something happened um, underhanded that prevented me out of my control. It prevented me from going to NC State, but I kept A and T as one of my five choices. It was either A and T or Howard going to be the only HBCUs I was going to go going to go to. Um, you know, you're a ball player. You're thinking you're, I want to play at the big boys. I want to play at the, the biggest schools. But I kept A&T. One, my grandfather went there, and I knew A&T had a tradition of um, winning championships, playing in the NCAA tournament. So I knew I was going to be able to do that if I went there. And right. after everything came out, um, I signed. I called Coach Corbett, and I said, Coach, I want to come. And I signed. And I often wonder, and I don't regret it, like you said, I, I look back on that. Those were the best years of my life. I don't regret it. I'm, I'm, I'm glad and proud to be an Aggie, uh, representing A&T in a couple of NCAA tournaments. And I, I, I played well when I was there. I did well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I often wonder, and I want to ask you this question, how would, I don't know if I could have handled being at a predominantly white college um, back then. And I wonder how it would have shaped me I remember getting a call from Yale, and I didn't like how the assistant coach was talking to me on the phone. Now, mm-hmm. this I was I was pretty arrogant, mm-hmm. I will admit. <laughs> so he didn't he didn't address me well. He acted as well, if. Well, you knew you could play too, right? You yeah. know, and I think that goes into it. And so the the knowledge I won't call it arrogance, but maybe the knowledge in your ability, and the expectation that he recognized that ability and that the communication between you two would have, have, you know, um, respected you, you know, in, in the knowledge that, Oh, I can ball stop playing. (laughs) But you know, when he called me, I was half asleep. I don't, I don't, I tell the story often. I was half asleep and he talked, he spoke to me as if he really didn't want to call me. Like he was like the head coach made him call me. And he was very blunt. Hmm. Basically, do you want to come or not? Would you want to come here or not? And I literally was like, nah, I'm good. And hung up the phone. And he hung up, I right. hung up. Mm-hmm. And I woke up later on like, did I just turn down a scholarship <laughs> for Yale? But, but you know, I look back and I wonder, how would that have shaped me? Who would I be today? Yes, I probably would have had opportunities, you know, maybe going to Yale Law or something like that. And those things open up some doors. But who would I be? Mm-hmm. As a black man, have you thought about if you had gone somewhere else, if you'd gone to one of those schools, how it would have shaped you and how you would be maybe different? Have you ever thought about that? No, you know, it's interesting that you asked that question, you know, and I alluded to it earlier, right? The moments that matter and, and we are all a sum of our decisions. And so, no, I, I really, I, it, that's pretty much anything for me in life. You know, I, I recognize that I am here right now in this moment because of every decision, every choice that I made. And um, a lot of, you know, the year that I graduated, the year that I, you know, from high school, the year that I graduated from college, you know, the year uh, that I, you know, picked up and moved from North Carolina to Texas and had my start having children. Like those, those years are so indelible in my mind and in my life because they, um, they were the reason why that decision led to this decision that led to this decision that led here, right? So I don't go back and 
think about what my life would have been if I had a, you know, selected a different institution. It's hard to even wrap my brain around it, right? Because my entire community, my support system, my, my best friends, you know, are all Aggies, right? And so for me now to imagine then life without them, it's just hard to even yeah. to think about that. Imagine not even having this conversation with you, right? You, you know, one of the things that, that an HBCU does is the community, the family is so deep, yeah. right? That yes, it's yes. not even about the blood. You know, my girlfriends, my best friends, my children, they are aunts, they are uncles. You know, they, I am their aunt, I am their uncle. And there's no amount of blood relation that would ever be able to separate that or um, that we can even sometimes tell the difference between the blood that runs through my sisters and I and the blood that runs through my, my girlfriends, right? And so I, and, I, and I think that that is what HBCUs do. You talked about this heritage and legacy. It is, it, it's hard to explain to people at times yeah. because it is this, um, it's this protection that we have for each other. And even the names that you talked about, whether they went to Howard or Fisk or Tennessee State or Morgan State, we love them. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. And we people don't understand celebrate that. and they don't understand. Like don't understand. when they win, we win. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not I'm not competing with another HBCU. I'm rooting for them. I, there's never any competition. Yes, internally we joke about, you know, Aggie, you know, A&T is the best, right? Howard, you know, HU and Aggie Pride and, you know, who's the real HU and the Spellmans and the Morehouse. But when I tell you when when one win, the entire community wins. Absolutely. And 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 that is what is so unique and different and beautiful about that HBCU experience. Well, you know, two, two things you said about, one about blood. Um, I don't know if people realize um, our blood changes. So when I, when I cut, my blood is blue, sometimes it's gold. It's a little blue. Yeah, it's a little blue. <laughs> it's a little bluish. It's a little dull, yes. Yeah, during the daytime it's gold, at nighttime it's blue. Um, I love it. <laughs> and then, you know, I think about, you know, the, the I call it sibling rivalry. Mm -hmm. Like yes. we have yes. fun. Every time I run into an, someone from an, another HBCU, I'll be like, oh, that's too bad. I'm sorry. <laughs> and, and I'll say I'm from A&T and, and they'll start laughing like, oh, here we go. Here we go. And then we end it with, but it's all love. Exactly. It's like exactly. siblings, you know, cousins, siblings, what have you. So you, you hit it on the head. Um, when one wins, we all win, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And I really want people to who listen, especially people out on the West Coast, um, to really understand the richness of HBCUs. And you said it a couple of times, people don't really get it. Right. Like, it's right. the experience. Uh, matter of mm -hmm. fact, I, when I went to A&T, I was going to go on other visits, because you get five visits before, you know, as an athlete, you get five mm -hmm. visits. Mm -hmm. I went to A&T on an off weekend. Right. Half the people went home. And I was, I lost my mind. <laughs> I was like, I'm looking around like, this is A and O. And I, I went, I, when I got back home, I said, coach, when, yes. where do I sign? Yes. 
Where do you sign? You yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah. So people don't get it, man. Is that you, whether it's the calf or um, we're going to have a moment. Let's just have a moment reminiscing. Whether it's the calf or <laughs> in front of the bookstore. In front of the bookstore. The band's marching, you know. The band people the people the hear union. The, yeah the union people hear the band they hear black college bands and they don't realize when the band practices on the football field when they come back they march through the through the campus so Absolutely. we line up on the sides and we're just you know doing our thing dancing with them and experiences like that you know yes um, yes that people but you just know what get. I think I, I do want to just point out another area because we do talk a lot within the historically black college community about the experience, about the relationships, but I want to also double down on the education yep. and really talk through the fact that I've been in corporate America now for 20 some years. And when I talk about my stack, my education from a and right next to an education from my Ivy league, I'm on par. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm competing. And, and for some time, sometimes there's this narrative that, that these, these universities are less than, um, that the, the, the caliber of talent that are coming out of these institutions, um, don't measure up or can't compete and all things being equal, right? You stack this, you know, an A&T kid up against a Ivy league kid, that you know, this Ivy League student is going to prevail. And, and, and that is exactly what it is. It's a myth because it's, it's not true. That these are high caliber, high quality institutions with some of the best educators, professors, um, intellectuals in the world. And what they are producing is quite honestly, the next generation, the current generation, the past generation of leaders across the world. And so, you know, it's it's the experience, but it's also the education and it's the, also the education rooted in, I genuinely care about you, Phil. I genuinely care about you, Ebony. I want you to succeed. And so if I go talk to one of my professors, he or she knew me and understood my situation and would do what was necessary to make sure that I was going to be successful. And so it's that piece, which is the is the uniqueness but it's also, again, the education. These institutions are producing the best that the world has to offer. And so never mistaken that in all of the love and the camaraderie and the fun, these institutions are um, producing brilliant minds every single day. Absolutely. And, and to your point, one reason why, another reason, more serious reason why I chose A and T was because their engineering program was one of the best. Right. And the other schools, which were all white schools, I chose. I did not go to them. And and we're talking some legendary coaches that mm -hmm. I could have played for, Hall mm -hmm. of Fame college coaches I could have played for, and I chose A and T not just because of the fun, but because of that engineering department. Even right. though I, I changed my major, but that was the draw. A and T's engineering department was one of the best. Right. Um, would you say that it's the lack of opportunity for, for, for people from black colleges that why that myth might might be uh, why that narrative may be out there? Because and I ask that question, because when I talk to um, whenever I've ta I've spoken with um, CEOs or, or someone who does hiring HRs, one of the things that they'll say is they don't they can't find 
the talent in terms of African-Americans. But many of them do not tap into, they have no connection mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. HBCUs. And, and we know that all, not all black students go to HBCUs, exactly. but that is, that is a, there's a, a wealth of, of uh, a talent there, right? Do you think that it's, it's partly also because of the, the, the lack of connection to HBCUs, the lack of opportunities that black students get coming out of college that it's assumed if you went to Yale, you're, you, these, are, these, are, these are the opportunities you get, your better education, but they're not even looking as much right. over here. Right. Is, that, is that, I don't know, I'm asking, I don't know. I think there are a couple of factors. Number one, I think one of the factors is even, even students who are entering historically black colleges, the majority of the black students that are enter, entering the institutions are still coming from um, fragile financial situations, right? The vast majority of them, most of these historically black colleges, you know, over 50% of the students are Pell Grant eligible, right? And so, you, so when you understand that that precarious or fragile um, financial um, situation, they're coming into an institution, um, you know, that, that reflects on their access, that reflects on their preparedness and readiness, not only to enter that institution, but also to enter, you know, the job market, uh, the labor market later on. So those, those two pieces are intertwined. And the stress that these students have to um, endure to even stay in school, right? I mean, and, and, and at the same time, I'm, I'm trying to stay in school. Listen, I, I'm the youngest of six. My parents, you know, my, my dad told us when, when I graduated from you know, uh, high school, you got three choices. You go to college, you go to military, you get a job, right? If I chose, I chose college, but I, me choosing college meant I pay for college, right? I didn't have I didn't have that luxury of having parents that could pay for us to go to school. Meanwhile, I had you know two or three other siblings in college at the same time, so we were all struggling. So I worked a full time job, you know, carrying a full load, and still you know um, doing other things um, to to enjoy my college experience. And so sometimes that leaves very little room to then start focusing on what my career would be. What is that career track? Where, where am I, where do I, you know, want to go? I, I'm just trying to stay in school right now. Yeah. And so I think it's, um, so that's one piece, right? Coming from these really fragile financial institutions, most of these students are coming in, um, needing to, you know, work full time and also um, have, um, you know, take out an exorbitant amount of student debt, which we'll talk about, you know, later. Um, which is one issue. And so it's the notion of I got to college and I just want to stay here. So that's, that's one. The second one is it's hard for folks to, to see what they, or, you know, it, what I, we always talk about is it's hard to become what you've never seen. So if you, if you're growing up in an environment where you don't see people who go into a corporate environment every day, you don't see individuals who um, are, you know, are engineers in your community, you know, it's hard for you to visualize what that career path looks like. Um, I grew up, you know, in the 70s and 80s where what I saw were teachers. So I came into A&T thinking that's what I wanted to be was an educator. And I eventually did that because that's what I saw. I, I eventually learned there were so many other career paths out there, but, you know, not really understanding what those career paths um, or career opportunities could be. And when I, when, when corporate, you know, individuals or folks say, you know, there's no pipeline. I, it's, it's false. 
you know, I, I think what they're saying is there's not a pipeline that they think is ready, you know, or there's not a pipeline of what people would quote say stars. I have to hear people say all the time, Ebony, I want to hire folks like you. Mm. What does that mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, tell me what does that mean? You're just a star. You do this. Right. But there are a lot of mediocre people around me. Why, why do I'm, why does my, why do I have to be a star? You know, why does that always have to mean that I have to be at the top of my game for you to want to hire me, right? And so I think it's, you know, it's some of that of what you think is ready, what, you know, what you what you want to have uh, an opportunity to shape and, and grow into. I've grown into my career. I've had mentors along the way that have helped me um, navigate this path that has not been easy by any stretch of the imagination because I didn't have parents who were in corporate. So I didn't know how to respond and, and act in certain situations. So I think it's the financial reason. I think, you know, students don't necessarily know or see all of the potential career paths that um, could, could, you know, be um, that they could explore. I think it's changing. Um, um, and then I think it is the notion of what corporate or what sometimes these people want to invest in. Um, and what they quote unquote think is the risk. Um, what I tell folks all the time, the hiring process is an inherent risk. Everyone that you hire is a risk because you don't know, you know, how that person is going to, um, to work out. So the notion that a person of color is even, even a greater risk is, um, is just silly. Um, so I think there are so many factors that drive that, um, but, but I will tell you again, this, the tide is changing. The HBCUs are, um, have always been producing talent. I think now the, the recognition of that and the visibility of them is, is much more heightened than it's ever been before. And to your point, that's not to say either that the students, the black students or the Hispanic Latino students that are at these majority campuses still need those same opportunities. You know, many of them are coming from precarious financial situations going into these you know, large institutions, and we still need to, you know, wrap our arms around them and make sure they're successful. Because the stats, quite honestly, um, you know, of a, of a student, you know, a, a white student, a black student coming in at the same time, having the same major, graduating at the same time, having the same GPA, the white student is still more likely to, you know, excel or get a, a role before the black student. I mean, so there are those inherent biases that still, you know, um, exist within our systems. Mm. Thank you for sharing that. That's a lot to chew on. A lot. Um, you, 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 made, you made the statement. You can't become what you don't see, right? Or we become what we see. Mm -hmm. And then you made reference to mentors. Because I want to segue a little bit into um, what you do right now, um, being in the corporate in corporate America. But but what black figures in the past or present have influenced you? thinking about yeah. Black History Month and, mm -hmm. and all those figures and names, many we don't often appreciate as much as they probably should, but who are those people that have influenced you past or present? I, I will stick home. I mean, for me, the people who are influenced me are those that come directly from my community. Okay. Um, you know, my parents, and I, I know sometimes it sounds so cliche-ish, but that's what I saw. I mean, I saw them struggle every single day to ensure that you know, we had food, <laughs> we had the basic necessities. You know, I didn't, I didn't know we were poor. You know, I didn't know we were working poor. I saw my parents go to work every day. 
And, but now in hindsight, as an adult, I can just recognize the struggle um, that they were in every single day and to basic survival, to go to work eight hours a day and still worry about, is this enough to keep the lights on? Is this enough to put gas in the car? I mean, it's, you know, it's heartbreaking. Um, and, and I'm in a, I'm so blessed that I'm, I've never had to think about that in my career. I've never, my children have never had to think about that. They, they wouldn't understand what that means. And, and, and you have to love the progress of that, but there's always a price for progress, right? And we can talk about that. So my parents are definitely, you know, influential. And then the teachers, I, I did grow up with a collection of amazing black educators. I mean, from Phyllis Chan Duncan to um, Deborah Jones, uh, Miss Peterson. I mean, every step of the way, I mean, and I, I think about my children who my daughter didn't have a black teacher until she was in the sixth grade. Mm. How'd, how'd that wow. make you feel? How'd that make you feel? I, I, like I had failed in some way as a parent, mm. you know, because 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 progress does happen and as that progress happens right you want the best for your children and sometimes the best means being in neighborhoods that don't always reflect who we are right they don't always see themselves in the communities in which we live in because we believe that that giving them the best education and the best experience and exposure um and 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 they'll get you know exposure through the black community through through our connections at A&T, through their cousins, through extracurricular activities, but they weren't necessarily seeing that in the schools that they were in. And she actually brought it to my attention one day. I think we were having a conversation about, you know, me growing up. And she said, mom, you know, I've never had a black teacher before. And I said, I don't, it, I was like, I don't understand. And as I thought about it, I'm like, you haven't. And so for me, what I saw every day were these amazing, powerful figures in the community who were leaders, um, were disciplinarians, <laughs> um, sometimes second mothers, second fathers, yes, you yes. know, to us, you know, um, they could correct us very easily, just like my mother could. I had the fear of them, just like I had of my mother and my grandmother. And that, that, that's again, that influences you. That makes you, that's a, that's the sum of me. That's a part of who I am having these amazing teachers. So the teachers, you know, absolutely influenced um, who, who I was. And when I became a teacher, other teachers that I worked with, that I was, you know, incredibly impressed with, who were amazing. And then as I transitioned out of education into corporate, I could say, um, Melody Hobson, for me personally, <laughs> you know, she's the, you know, president of Aerial Investments. And, but I, but at the time, the first time I saw her was on to date the Today Show years ago. And I remember thinking, wow, she's so put together. I mean, she was a reflection of me, you know, and, and always just completely polished. She was unapologetically a black woman and unapologetically just fly. I mean, she was just all of that. And I was like, that's, that's who it. I want to be. That's it. That's you know, it. I couldn't, I hadn't figured it out yet. But when I saw her, I was like, that's who I want to be. And, um, you know, for me, she's just been kind of that beacon. I've followed her and, and her career and um, yeah, had a chance to meet her about two years ago. And 
And the first thing she said to me was, you look amazing. Now, I know that may seem shallow. <laughs> People may say, you know, Ebony, that's not a big deal. But for someone that I had modeled myself after, her presence, how she showed up, to me, and for her to recognize that in me, in the first time that I had met her, I was, I didn't need any other compliment ever in life. I, I was, <laughs> I was good after, you know, Melody had, had shared that with me backstage before we went on a stage for an event together. So that was, um, that was absolutely amazing. Um, and now I think about, you know, women like Rosalind Brewer, who's the, you know, she's the only black female CEO of a fortune 500 company right now. It's only right one now, right now and yeah. it's her. Yeah. And that's only been in the last two months, yeah. you know, um, she's the CEO of Walgreens. And so, you know, the, the, the role models are far and few between at the top. And, um, and so you, you, you recognize that I too am a role model. I have role models that, that I look up to, but for, for black women in particular, um, there's just so few of us. There's just so few of us. And it's something that I call one day when I, when I write my book, I'm going to call it the beautiful burden, you know, the, the beauty in the privilege, the honor, the responsibility of being this woman, this black woman in some organizations kind of at the top, but the burden of being the only one and being constantly pulled on and sucked in and being a part of conversations and dialogue that can be so incredibly tiring and draining. And yet you cannot complain. I dare not complain because I'm so blessed. And so that's the beauty and the beauty and the blessing, the beauty and the responsibility, the beauty and my place in this ecosystem, but the burden of what that costs me, costs my family, you know, costs your community. Yeah. I, I want people who are listening to really grab a hold of what you said about the, the black history around you. And I think that we, and, and we, can, we can broaden that to those who are not African-American mm -hmm. to think about the history around them, right. right? We don't always have to go so far back uh, because people are making history right now. Every day. And they're people who shape them. The people, the, 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 those who make the history, the, the, the famous, the popular, there are every there are teachers and coaches and parents and aunts and uncles that are shaping that shape them, so they're yes. a part of that history, right? You know, yes. you you made me think about you know, the teachers in my life. Um, I would not be here if it were not for them, and those black teachers that yes. spoke into my um, spoke into my life. They knew my parents. They knew my family. They cared about me. Yes. They wouldn't let me. They wouldn't let me cut corners. You know, and that's necessary. Um, I think about my uncles that in sports world that they, they made history. Mm -hmm. You know, I had two uncles that got drafted in the NFL back to back years. How many families can say that? Exactly. You know, and I, I got a chance to see that. Well, I didn't see it when they got drafted, but I saw it as, as I grew up. Um, so I want yeah, it helps us appreciate the black history that happens in our lives, the moments and black history happens every day. Yeah. And we don't. <laughs> we, we don't appreciate that. And I, mm -hmm. I, I'm guilty of that, too. I'm always looking so far back or so far in terms of um, how high someone has arisen in their career, thriving in their career for the history. And recently I've been challenged, even the last episode, I was challenged even more so to really focus on the history makers 
in my life, right? You know, you, you talk about the beautiful burden. I love that. I love that. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, the, about both. I'm sure you can unpack both. Because you live and work at the intersection of gender, race, and business. And that's no easy task, right? I live at the intersection of race and ministry, race and business sometimes, race and whatever, culture. But you have that added, that extra of gender. Like you said, yes. only one black woman CEO in the Fortune 500 company. Before her, there was only one at one point, Ursula, Ursula uh, Burns. Burns. Um, and we have, I think, maybe 15, 16 African-American men now. No, it's only in history, three. In history. I'm talking about in oh, history. Oh, in history. In history. Currently, yeah. right now, it's only three. Yeah. It's uh, Ellison at Lowe's. There's Frazier at Merck. And then um, Renee, I can't think of his last name, but at um, M&T Bank. So it's, it's, you know, small numbers. Yeah. And so what's been your experience as a Black woman in corporate America? Uh, what are the challenges and, if, if any, what are the advantages? Yeah. Unpack that beauty and... and the beautiful burden for us. The beautiful burden, yeah. So <clears throat> the the beautiful part, um, or the the piece that brings me joy, is the pipeline. You know, seeing other amazing um, black men, black women, Hispanic Latino men and women that are um, doing amazing work, that are incredibly uh, talented. And let's be honest, that have been talented. You know, I, it's interesting because I, I watch the news and I, I follow a lot of the, you know, corporate happenings and, um, you know, um, announcements. And we've seen, you know, quite a few announcements over the last, you know, year of some really prominent um, people of color um, that have made significant moves it's two years behind, right? These, these moves should have been made. Yep. These people were already operating in these spaces, in these roles. This isn't, this isn't a risk. This isn't someone who all of a sudden decided, oh, we're gonna make this person you know, the head of this um, because it makes sense. Because believe what you wanna believe, but corporate is always going, is about you know, the, the bottom line. And you know these individuals uh, make organizations um, money, and so no one's going to move a person into a role because they it feels good. It's it's they're moving these individuals to the role because they're doing the, their job. They've been excelling at the job, and um, it's past due for the rest the res um, the the recognition of them being in this space, and so. Although I'm excited and I'm, I'm loving to see it, I'm, I'm still a little <laughs> upset, you know, if I, can, if I can be honest to say, well, they should have been doing it. They should have been there. Um, and so, you know, it's, I, I have enjoyed my career in, in corporate. It's, um, I've had a lot of mentors uh, along the way, many of them, them who, who don't look like me. And you need that. You need that co-conspirator, that ally, right, in your life who doubles down on you, right? That at the end of the day, we talk about performance. Performance is table stakes. That's, that's just what you do to enter the game. It should never be a question. 
then it's about access and network. And so once you once you've already invested your table stakes, once you already that the performance is there and your brand is set, because your brand and performance go hand in hand. And once those two pieces are solidified, then it's about what your network and your access to that network looks like. And um, and and that's really the difference. And oftentimes it's it's how you're able to navigate that. Are you being smart about? It? Are you being thoughtful about it? And so it's been on that side, I've made some strategic moves. I've made some bad moves, um, but, they, but they all have um, attributed to who I am today. They are a part of you know, how I am in my current role. I would say the, the, the not so good things, it's just, it's lonely sometimes. It's, you know, you're, you're on calls or you're in rooms where you, you know, you're the only person in the room, you're the only person of color in the room. And, um, you know, and sometimes you just, you want that reinforcement. You're on, you want that person to think like, I don't, I don't necessarily represent the voice of all black people, but I need to tell you, sometimes you want that other voice to just kind of co-sign with you to say, yes, Ebony, that's right. You know, or I was thinking about the same thing. And so I think that um, having that support system at times um, isn't there. And, and because these other women, you know, because oftentimes there's only three to four other black women at the top of an organization that are in different parts of the organization, you don't always get to see them on a day-to-day basis. So they're lonely too. They're lonely in their little silos and they're all being pulled in a million different directions. And so we all have to make conscious effort to spend time with each other, to connect with each other, to ensure that we're healing, to call my sister and say, I'm fixing your crown today. How are you? What do you need from me? And so, you know, that's the challenge of just the connection and, you know, um, the, 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 the further you go up, the air gets thinner and um, it's, it's less, and, um, you know, the politics become, um, you know, uh, a little harder at times to navigate and, and knowing that you have allies and other folks that will help you navigate sometimes those landmines um, as, you, as you progress in your, in your career. So um, the last thing I will say about the career piece is I've, I've known what I wanted to do since I entered corporate America. And I, I think that's really important because if you don't know what you want to do, particularly a, a, a woman of color, and I, and I will say this, and this may not be true for everyone, is that we are, we get things done, not everyone, but we are, you know, we, we kind of come in and we can solve problems, we can fix things. And um, oftentimes I've seen a lot of women of color um, are relegated to roles where they're fixing things, fixing messes, fixing issues and problems, because that's what we're good at. You know, we're in, we can get in the muck of things and make it all better. And what happens is is that those roles start to be those roles in which we're constantly fixing things. Those aren't CEO roles. Those aren't roles that are going to get you to those levels. There may be roles that people love you in, and they constantly talk about you and because they know you can get in there and fix it, you can execute. But people have to see you as a strategic thinker, as a strategic influencer, um, a, a, an advisor in which people seek out your counsel. 
not that you can fix things. And so be very careful in your career that you are navigating and you're clear about what you want to do and articulate that. And even if you're moving into a role, because I've been in roles where I've been moved in things where they wanted me to fix something. And every single time I've said, that's great. I'm excited about the opportunity, but let me remind you of what I want to do. Let's be clear. And I need you to help articulate to me how this role that you're moving me to is gonna get me closer to this role. Mm. Because if you can't articulate what you wanna do, other people will articulate it for, for you. you. And that's why we're sometimes not in those positions to be looked at because we're constantly fixing stuff that's been broken by others. Oh man, you, you took me back just now to the role that black women played taking care of the slave owner's children and even after slavery taking care of you know being the help mm. and so it's it's a it's a, a another version of that is what I what I'm getting a, a higher paid version <laughs> <laughs> but 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 in essence it's this idea that um someone's decide someone made a mess or there are messes and because you're good at fixing, repairing, you you take care of this mess, while we go and make more messes <laughs> from our, from our position. And then you're gonna come alongside and fix that mess too, and clean that up too. So it made me think about 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 that. Now you know I'm doing some research for my dissertation, and just talking about how the plantation model has not has never left, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and we're still navigating it. Mm, we're, mm. we're breaking barriers and we're tearing some stuff down, but we're still navigating this plantation model. It's just morphed into something different. And mm -hmm. it's the cosmetics is the economic, the prosperity. If we're right. progressing and we're getting um, higher paychecks, then this is not the same. But in essence, we're navigating the same structure. Right? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting correlation that you make there, right? I mean, I, I never, I didn't think about it in that way, but I think when you you connect these, right, when you start talking about systemic issues and structural issues, right, and how people think, you know, it's very easy to connect the two of them together. And so I, you know, I often, you know, tell women, women in general, but particularly Black women, um, is when you're fixing Make sure you see the vision ahead and articulate the vision. Make sure that you, if you fix that, just say, so here's how, here's what's happening next. And here's two, three steps down the road, right? Because again, there's the diet, like when you're now in the room and you can hear the conversation in the room, you start hearing the conversation of, right? Yeah, you know, she's not really, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily see her in that role. Well, what does that mean? What does, when you say you can't see her, does that mean, you know, and so I think it's then understanding what that language means and breaking it down. And sometimes it is about, sometimes it could be about presence. Other times it could be about, does this, do they understand how she thinks? Can they see how she thinks and processes information and really thinks strategically? And so that, you know, but I think part of that too is also being very thoughtful about what you want to do and, and, and not, compromising that and I've always I've never compromised what I want to do and I'm doing the work that I always wanted to do now and it may take a time take some time it took 20 years 
but I needed those other experiences to get me to yeah. the space. Yeah. yeah. I want to go back real quick to something you said, and we've talked about these two, these two words before. Um, you, you said something about being lonely, there not mm. being many of, of you, of us, when, when you get there. The air is thinner up there. <laughs> I love that. Um, can that be what contributes to this mentality of the hustle or the grind? That it keep be, because those opportunities are so limited, the access is not readily available for us um, as much as we would we would hope for, um, feel like it's equitable. Um, people talk a lot about being on their hustle, on their grind, and and I I push back a little bit. There is a there's always going to be a work ethic that we have to have, right? Mm -hmm. But no one ever talks about self care in the midst of that, because you can hustle and you can grind your soul to death, to where you're no good. Even if you got the opportunity, you're no good. You're burnt out. Yes. So can you? And then you said something else. You said about you talked about working, being intentional about creating those spaces of connection and community when you get to those, into the, to that level. Like that's what you should be grinding and hustling for. That's part of the self-care, right? Yes, um, yes. What advice do you give people, especially women, and even more particularly women of color, um, striving in their fields and they, they have that hustle and grind mentality? Can you speak to that? Yeah, first of all, words matter. And when, when you talk about describing yourself in hustle and grind terms, again, you're describing yourself in those fix-it terms. You're starting to describe yourself to others. And even the way you believe and process your work is that I can fix it. I'm going to roll up my sleeves and I'm going to get in the muck. It is self-sabotaging. And... I despise the word hustle and despise the word grind. And when I hear people say it, particularly in communities of color, like I get the context. I get the context of this notion of, I gotta be better. I have to, I have to work harder um, to get half as much. And I'm, I'm not disputing that I'm, because in some circles that exist, but, but we have to work smarter. We have to work intentionally and so if you're going to replace words you know replace your words with i'm going to be intentional and i'm going to be smart and and if and if grind and hustle is the language you use use in the fact use in the way that other people can hustle and grind on your behalf mm. and so it's you know so i don't i don't use those terms as i describe myself as i describe my work um and that's where the intersection between getting to a point in which you stop and getting to a point in which you cross over. Because, I mean, think about the term hustle. Hustle means busy, keep going, busy, busy, busy. And, you know, you talk to people at work sometimes and I'll, you know, I'll have mentor conversations and they'll call and they say, oh my gosh, Ebony, I'm so busy. And I'm listening to them and I'm like, why are you busy? What are you doing that's making you so busy? You're not being busy. You're being productive. You're being thoughtful, right? I just, you know, again, I'm an English major. <laughs> so words matter, but it yeah. also matters because that's a part of your brand. And that's how you show up. And if you show up with that mentality, that's how people will treat you in that same mentality. So you have to change that mindset. And, you know, you hear it a lot, you know, particularly and you read it a lot in the social media terms. And, um, you know, it's just detrimental. 
And then for Black women, the hustle and the grind also means at home, right? Um, it, it's like we can't turn it off because we've, we've, we've subscribed to the notion of that's who we are. That's our existence. And so we, we hustle in at work. We're busy trying to get there. And then we come home, we're hustling. And, you know, with our friends, we're hustling. And it's just this never-ending circle. And then we're so tired. You know, Black women are so incredibly stressed. And, and, and I, I, don't, I don't think you, your guest touched on it last week when you were talking about, you know, health disparities. But not all the, the environment causes these illnesses within Black women. It's stress. Yep. It's stress because we're not eating right. Yep. It's stress because we're tired yep. and our immune system breaks down. And, and that's when we're more susceptible to these diseases and illnesses. Yep. That is what is killing us. This hustle, this grind. And, you know, it's just it's not it's not productive. I'm, as you can tell, I'm passionate about it because <laughs> I want us to stop doing it. It's just not productive. And um we do it even when we're on vacation and and then the hustle becomes ego because the notion that work can continue without me how dare mm, they yeah girl let me tell you something turn that phone off go take care of yourself as a matter of fact that's the people who hustle on your behalf let them do it let them recognize that work can happen without you but they missed you they missed you. They missed your intelligence. They missed your input. And when they came back, they didn't make a decision because they were like, you know, Ed, but we really wanted your input. So here's where we are, but we love you to, you know, help us think through it. So you weren't in the midst all the time, you know, trying to navigate things because your ego wouldn't let you, you know, stop grinding. <laughs> so, you know, just take a break, sis, and step back, take care of yourself, take care of your family, you know, take care of the people that you are loving. Because when you say that you're hustling, grinding, the other people that's in your life that love you sign up for that hustle and grind too. And what does that then do to them, mm. right? And so it's just this, it's just this circle. And just know that that's not the way to success. The way to success is other people um, helping you to get to that success. Other people mentioning your name in those circles to get to that success. Other, it's what is being said when you're not there. That's what I try to tell people with the hustle and grind and the ego. When the ego, take the ego out because they're talking about you when you're not there. That's what you want to happen. And if you can't sometimes take yourself out of it, this ever presence again goes back to why you're in these roles that you're constantly fixing stuff. And so it's, 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 you know, I think this is, this is not scientific at all, <laughs> but I do think that there is correlation there. And, um, and, and, and part of it is cultural because we have had to work so hard to get progress. We have had to knock down barriers in spite of every single hurdle, right. That's come our way. Right. So it is legitimate. It is absolutely legitimate. But at some point, we then have to make a decision, a conscious decision, an intentional decision to say, I'm smarter than this. And I'm smarter than everyone in the room. And how, how am I going to get from point A to point B? Uh, I'm going to do it by using everybody in the room um, and not trying to do it by myself. Wow. Wow. You know, we've, we've talked a lot about influencers. We talked about history makers, um, mentors, what have you. But you're... 
you're an influencer in your own right. And as I shared in, in the intro, and as I've told you, I think if not this year, very soon, you, your <laughs> name better be in the top 100, top 50, most powerful, most influential black women in this country. Um, if people pay attention to what's going on now, your work um, is built, built into your work is racial equity built into what you do. Can you talk a little bit about um, that role that you mm -hmm. that you have at, at Bank of America? Um, and you, you, you said you knew what you wanted. Um, so you kind of answered that question. But can you talk a little bit about that role and, mm -hmm. and, and how rewarding is it to, to, to be in that position um, to, to cause the influence that you that you do? Right. You know, <clears throat> going back a little bit to the hustle and grind, you know, not only do you want to be intentional and smart, you want one day for your work to be impactful. And so for me, that was the journey. And so what, what do I want? I want my work to be impactful. So what does that look like? How does that manifest itself in the career that I have? And what is the job that can lead to that impact? And this, this work that I'm doing um, alongside the bank and so many others, is that work that will have impact. When we talk about racial equity and economic opportunity within Black and Hispanic Latino communities, I mean, you know, to work for an organization that lives its values and its commitments um, is incredibly rewarding personally. And so it's, it's, you know, those are the things that drive you and allow you to get up every morning and be excited and thrilled about the work that you do. And, and don't get me wrong, you know, it's still work. And, and so there are days when it's like, really? <laughs> Is this what we're gonna do today? <laughs> um, but but it's, I still know that the end result is that it's going to impact someone in these communities that have been under-resourced for years and years and years. And this is not a suggestion that this, you know, the, this racial equity work, this, this funding that we've, we've committed is going to change years of hardened systems. It is not, that is not, it's about providing strategies and helping to support solutions, helping to catalyze work with a number of organizations that can then go deep and do the work within these communities. So it is the way in which we want to, we want to start and, and, and move, um, move these systems away and they're, and they're going to be chipping away. Right. And it's going to take us and a, a lot of other companies and a lot of other individuals and a lot of other communities to start chipping away at this work, but the commitment is there. And, and that is what is incredibly important. And so my ability to, you know, work within with community leaders, um, you know, community influencers, internal and external to find strategies and ways in which we, um, build wealth within these communities because that that's that's the equalizer right is yeah. is wealth and not just wealth but generational wealth yeah and um, you know and what I often tell people too that there is a distinct difference between having a substantial income and substantial wealth they're not the same <laughs> not people the same. Yeah. <laughs> not yeah. the same. and so how do we how do we build wealth within 
our communities that then is generational because that is what the influence that is those are the things that will influence change along with policy and along with a lot of other elements and pieces and so the work at its core is really around building wealth within communities of color and so extremely thrilled and excited and humbled i mean humbled in that i came from nothing you know i mean i i think about my grandmother you know my mother's mother who had no indoor running water you know this is in 
companies and when you're switching careers and you're thinking about going to another organization, research that company. What do they what do they say? Yeah. And what then do they do? What do they do? Right. And 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 if nothing else, I would say coming out of this pandemic, every every company should be, you know, on um, you know, if you're if you're an employee switching organizations, you should do a thorough review to understand how do they respond in this moment of crisis. If I'm an employee of that organization, and the next time there's a crisis, what will they do? And I think that's important. I mean, if nothing else, this pandemic, this 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 racial inequity um, that has has been there, this is not new, but that has been there and yet has come to the forefront, what did they do? And I think that is the fundamental question that we should all continue to ask, not only our employers, but our community leaders and ourselves of what did we do? Absolutely. Amen, amen, amen. Um, what they invested or are investing and entrusting you with is, move when, when, is a company that's, that's not engaging in tokenism but wants to influence authentic change yes generational change yes and that's yes. why i really wanted people to understand what they entrusted with you it wasn't just about the the figure um but it's it, you know i know i know there are companies out there that will make token moves um to to save customers to uh, preserve reputation until everything dies down. And then when you look back and ask that question, what did they do? I mean, that's one of the questions I say to people when I'm talking about racial issues in general. When your grandkids read about what happened in 2020 and they say, Grandma, Granddaddy, what did you do? What will you say to them? Exactly. And that's the question you're you're posing to corporations mm -hmm. or about corporations. What did they do? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think what what this past year has done is um, it's 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 forced people to show up different. N number one, we talk about housing, the 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 definition of housing, the definition of home is forever changed. Home now means something so different than it ever is as, set, as we've said it before, because we're home every day. Yeah. The space that keeps us safe. And so when we think about folks that don't have homes, I mean, it just, it really resonates. It hits you. And not only do they not have home, but they've been denied housing. They've, they've had barriers that have prevented them from housing, right? So it is, it is fundamentally redefined what home means. And so we should, you know, we should always keep that in the forefront of our minds, particularly throughout this, this pandemic. But to your point, what did you do? How did these companies show up? You know, even from a DNI lens that we talk about the notion of bring your whole self. My whole self is on display every day. You can see my kids in the background. You know, you can see, you know, your spouse or significant other walk through the background. You are in people's homes. Again, it's redefined what people's home. And so now the vulnerability 
of being in someone's home every single day for work, that means you company has to, sh- you have to show up differently. You, you can't, you can't do what you did before because you're in my home every day. I mean, I'm, what I do for you now intersects uh, constantly, daily, you just... all the time. And so, so for you to say that your home, what you do at home, doesn't matter what you do in the street. That, oh no, no, it matters. You it just, matters. You just, you just flipped it on them though. <laughs> you said company. When you show up in my home. Yes. <laughs> not, not how I'm showing up at work. Is it, right. that, That's important too. Yes. But you just, you just, you just changed the whole paradigm for me. Company, yes. how you show up in my home. We're sharing this Zoom space. We're sharing the Zoom space. And so what I feel, how in my environment, in my community, you see it, you feel it. You feel it very differently now. Yeah. And so for you to say, no, nah, I'm good. No, that don't work anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's going to be what then, what, did, what 2021, 2022, it, the paradigm has shifted. And so that's, again, the questions that people ask their companies and their organizations are, what did you do and who are you? I'm thinking about the democratization of space now. Mm -hmm. It's not controlled and dictated and centralized with corporations because now we all have to share space. Yes. And you have to respect my space and now you get to see how my space shapes me when I come into your building. Exactly. And that should be empowering to anyone listening, anyone pursuing um, a career in corporate America or, or in any context. This, what, what you're sharing should be empowering. I hope you guys are listening. <laughs> Ladies, I hope you're listening. Um, this is gold. Final question. I'll let you have the last words before we close it out. Is there anything else you would like to, it's not really a question. Is there anything you want to share? Anything you, you may have forgotten that you would want to drop? And I want you to speak specifically to women. I want you to speak, because I know that's your passion. I know it's your heart. Mm. Women, empowering women. Um, and and I'm, I'm glad you are that way. Even when we talk, you're that way unapologetically. Um, and if you want to say anything to black women or women of color or all women, is there anything you want to share? Um mm-hmm with them you know i will share uh this is not my quote this is actually susan taylor's um for those who don't know the fabulous amazing legend susan taylor i know Uh, she is the former editor-in-chief of essence she is she is essence yeah um she her legacy will always be that and she came to spoke to uh, came to speak sorry to to a group of women um, not too long ago. And she said that your competition is who you were yesterday. Mm. And I'm like. <laughs> you want to throw something at her? <laughs> what? I, well, and see, the beauty is, see, now I'm in my home, so I can I can get the spirit. Yeah, yeah. She gave yeah. me a word, so I had to get out of <laughs> my seat. And I was like. I'm about to throw something Susan, at this computer. What, what, say that again. I mean, and it. It is so beautiful because what I want to say to sisters is like, I see you. My competition is never you. 
you I'm always going we are always going to win. I'm always going to root for you. There's never any competition. Mm. Know that. Mm. And if you see it, stop it. Squash it. Don't even do it. Go to her and say, I see you. Let me help you. What do you need from me? Let me spend some time. I I do two things. I say two things. You know, no and yes are complete sentences. So if I can't do it, I can't do it. No. And I don't have any regrets about saying no. End of it. If I say yes, it might be a modified yes. It may be a yes. Can I do it in a week? Yes. Let's put it out a month. Yes. And no, and then I don't hold any resentment when I say yes. I say it. And so just know that if a sister put time on your calendar, you better say yes. <laughs> and just say yes. And if you can't do it that week, that month, you're going to do it. Just spend time with her. Spend because she's seeking you out because she sees something in you that she is trying to gain. And you should do the same thing when you see a sister that you want to spend some time with, put some time with her, send her a note. I just want to spend some time and just know that there is no competition. Your competition is you. I'm always trying to make me better. You're always trying to make you better. And, you know, I just, I, I love it. Cause I think for so many years, there was this narrative of women, you know, competing in each other, particularly black women. Cause there's so few of us. Yeah. The few of us, we talk constantly. We are, we are each other's cheerleaders. I mean, we are, I mean, unapologetically team whoever is winning that week, you know, team Ebony, team Karen, whoever is winning, we are on that team. And so just know that whatever organizations that you're in, whatever businesses that you're building, whatever bridges in your community that you are or mending, just know that whatever women are in those circles, that you are there to cheer them on, you are there to support them, and they're not your competition. You are. Wow. Thank you so much, Ebony Thomas. You're amazing. This was rich. Um, I, I hope and pray that the, the people, um, and particularly the women um, that are listening, grab a hold of this of these jewels these gems and and even seek you out and follow you because you're always posting on social media even the things that uh, these quotes uh, these nuggets <laughs> you're always posting um, and I, I glean from them as well I glean yeah. from them as well so I think everyone can 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 benefit from this this episode so thank you so much for sharing um, we got to leave with an Aggie pride then Aggie pride listen <laughs> Aggie Pride. And listen, I think this is our next podcast. We're going to call it Two Aggies. Just two Aggies. <laughs> Doing Aggie things. Doing Aggie things. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, thank you for inviting me. I enjoy the conversation. And um, I just, I love all that you're doing. I'm so excited about the book. Um, it's so amazing. I'm so incredibly proud of all that you're doing and just the influence that you have, because uh, you two are an amazing influencer. So thank you. Thank well, you. thank you. Thank you much. We'll talk soon. Absolutely. I really hope you were encouraged and empowered by this conversation. You can keep up with Ebony and follow her on Instagram at E B O N Y A. 
E-B-O-N-Y-E-B-O-N-Y-E-B-O-N-Y-E-B-O-N-Y-E-B-O-N-Y-E-B-O-N-Y-E-B-O-N-Y-E-B-O-N-Y-E-B-O-N-Y-E